Well, good morning. Man, I'm excited to be here. There are so many reasons to be excited to be in a place like this where we gather together uh, to engage in the uh, united act of experiencing the wonder of who God is, uh, both by declaring it to Him and to each other through worship and then experiencing it through the Word of God. So super excited. And then one of the certain reasons to be excited is because of the particular part that we are currently journeying through in the Scriptures. We are in the book of Romans, uh, an amazing letter written by Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, He's writing it to the church in Rome. Uh, He's preparing to move his headquarters from Antioch to Rome. And so this letter, as he writes it to the church in Rome, into a Jewish and Gentile mixed context, uh, he's writing this letter to prepare the way for his journey Uh, in describing the beautiful, intricate details of the redemptive story of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the the majestic, wondrous big picture, the simplicity, the, the awesome nature of the redemptive story of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this book really is, in many ways, an amazing journey through the gospel. And, and we are journeying together uh, through the current section of the book of Romans toward a verse. And the verse we're journeying toward right now is uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, which says, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, we should respond in this way. And so when we get to Romans chapter 12, uh, what we should expect because of what it says is that Romans chapter 1 through 11 is an extraordinary, expanding journey of the grace and mercy of God. It, it is just an amazing part of our clarity of what God has done, is doing, will do, uh, who He is and who we are because of Him. So, uh, most recently, we found ourselves in chapter 8. And chapter 8, honestly, in the book of Romans, is like a, a, a pinnacle chapter, isn't it? I mean, it is an unbelievable chapter. In fact, if you talk to people that have a general sense of the Bible and you say, what is your favorite chapter in Scripture? It's not unusual for Romans chapter 8 to be on that list. Romans chapter 8 starts out, therefore, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because what the law could not do in that it was weakened by our sinful nature, Christ did for us. Then in Romans chapter 8, it's this unpacking of what it means that we have the Holy Spirit and empowered and adopted and sealed and, 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 and we belong. And then Romans chapter 8 ends where we ended last week with this unbelievable verse that nothing, 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 and nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. So when you get to the end of Romans 8 and you're weak in the knees and your heart's beating fast and the mercy of God is massive and you kind of feel like that's the perfect moment for Romans 12.1, don't you? Like, I mean, you're like, nothing can separate us. Therefore, in view of God's mercy. And you're like, oh, that would be perfect. Except there's Romans 9, 10, and 11. (laughs) And if we're honest, just for a second, coming out of Romans chapter 8 into 9, 10, and 11, super weird. I mean, it just, it, 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 at first, it feels just a little, a little kind of like a, right? What, why? Because have you ever read Romans 9, 10, and 11? Most of you are like, I, I, actually, now that I think about it, I, I think I skipped those. Uh, it's not unusual because Romans chapter 9, when you enter into it at first, it is this incredibly theological passage about the sovereignty of God. The only people that love Romans chapter 9 are, are, are master's degree reformers. Now, people that have reformed, they love it. It's their favorite chapter in all of the Bible, right? Uh, because it's a, but it's a theological chapter that's above most people's pay grade and outside of the scope of our experience. And so we read it so we can check a box. Like, I read it. It was weird. I don't know. I have no idea what it means. Then we get into Romans chapter 10, and Romans chapter 10 really is a single verse. It's not really a whole chapter, because the only verse that matters in Romans chapter 10 is Romans chapter 10, 9, that says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. We know that verse, and you're all going, that's in Romans 10? It is. You see, you didn't even know that, did you? So Romans chapter 10 is evangelism in its simplicity, and we're like, I just need that verse. The rest, I don't know. It says stuff. It seems okay. And then you get to Romans 11, and you just don't even check the box to read it. You 
just skip it because it starts about something with Israel and a remnant. You don't even know what a remnant means, and so you move on. And then Romans 12 arrives, and you're like, oh, therefore, in view of God's mercy from Romans chapter 8. So we just kind of skip it. So since all of that is true, we're going to move on to Romans 12.1 right now. And no, I'm just kidding. No, we're not. No, we're not. You know why we're not going to? Because Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 are unbelievably mercy rich. They are unbelievably mercy rich. In fact, what you're going to find as we travel through 9, 10, and 11 over the next few months is that you are going to sit back and go, what 9, 10, and 11 do really is to take what felt like the pinnacle and eight and to solidify that into a foundation that cannot and will not be shaken. Uh, it is an incredible journey into the mercy of God, and it is an amazing space to travel into. And I will tell you, when we are done with 11, you will understand, as I do, why Romans chapter 12 comes in 12 and not in 9. Because we need 9, 10, and 11 to be able to understand the fullness, the, the magnitude of God's incredible mercy to the human race. 9, 10, and 11 also exist because... In the sequence of this unpacking to the context that Paul was writing to, uh, there would be questions that would emerge that the Spirit of God inspiring Paul is answering in sequence for all who are listening. So let's talk about that context because otherwise we will not understand why 9, 10, and 11 are even necessary to be able to see the scope of God's mercy. See, remember that when Paul is writing this letter, he is writing to a mixed audience of Gentiles and Jews. The Jewish people that are in the church with the Gentile people are people that know Jesus. So because they know Jesus, they understand uh, to an extent the gospel as anyone in that time early on understood it to an extent. That's why Paul is writing the book of Romans to expand that clarity. They, they grasp the reality of Jesus being Messiah. They understand the beauty of the Gentiles being grafted in, though they will understand it more from this writing of this letter. And so they are very happy with the fact that Jesus came, that he's the Messiah, that the, the Gentiles get to be part of the story, and that they are part of the story. However, they are still deeply tied to their kinsmen, the ethnic Israel, right? Because Israel represented the Jewish people that were the people of God by the covenants and the promises and the, and, and the reality of circumcision, which uh, was the outward sign of their belonging or adoption, and through the patriarchs and through the very journey into the Messiah himself. And so the Jewish people have a long, rich history of belonging to God, and all these words that we are using in the book of Romans chapters 1 through 8 are words that are not unfamiliar to ethnic Israel. They are the people who belong to God. They are adopted into his family. They have the promises of God. He is faithful to them. They live righteously. So here's the deal, right? Remember that in chapters one through eight, Paul, in bringing to the table that Jesus and Jesus alone is our means to be right with God and that it is by faith and faith alone that we can do this, not by works, he has systematically worked through all of the previous things we thought made us people of God and unraveled them, undone them. See, circumcision is what made you belong, right? right? Except that in Romans, uh, he has undone that. Outward circumcision is not the issue. It's the circumcision of the heart. The law, that's what makes you someone that's right with God. No, no, the law failed us in that it is good, but our sin nature is bad and we couldn't live up to the law. Okay, so, so it's the... It's the covenants of old that, uh, that come through the circumcision by the law. No, no, we, we, we undid that through the sequence of things. It is, it is now not by an outward code, but by an inward reality of the Spirit of God. Romans chapter 7. You are no longer obligated to the outward code for righteousness, but you are bound to the inward reality of the Spirit of God who will empower you to righteousness and be the code for you. And He will seal you as adopted children. So if you are listening to this and you are an ethnic Jew, you are part of Israel during the time of history that we're in when the writing of Book of Romans took place, remember you're also listening to this letter in a single reading. 
They're not taking four years to go through it like we are, okay? They, they got to the church. Paul sent the letter. They opened the letter and they read. So you have just gotten to the end of Romans chapter 8. It's been in one sitting probably. You've been listening into the details. And there have been mo- uh, moments and moments of wows in the audience going, wow, wow. And some clarities and some wrestles. And for the Gentile people right now, they're like, oh, oh. And for the Jewish people, they are feeling that for themselves. But there's a question emerging. You see, because a number of the Jewish people rejected the Messiah, Jesus. A number of the people that would be family members and friends of those sitting in this very church rejected the Messiah, Jesus. Do you know why they rejected Jesus? Well, there's a million uh, small reasons, I'm sure, but the major reason was this. Because remember, when Jesus came as the Messiah, that the Jewish world in general terms, the leadership of the Jewish world understood that the Messiah was going to come from God for who? For the people of Israel to reestablish them as the nation that would rule over the earth with God. And it is in the ruling over the earth with God that they would be able to subdue the pagan behaviors of the whole world or undo them. So Israel was under the occupation, uh, the, 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 the enslavement of many nations over time at this current time under Rome. And so they believed when the Messiah, the true Messiah would arrive, he would overthrow the world, uh, set Israel up in their rightful place, and they would rule with him over the world. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't overthrow Rome. Jesus overthrew sin and death, which we know, oh my goodness, is so much bigger. But when you're under the occupation of Rome, and Rome remains after sin and death has been undone, it doesn't feel so tangible, does it? And so many of the Jewish leadership and the Jewish people went, this can't be the right Messiah. He didn't do what we expect him to do. Now, uh, we know from the Old Testament that the problem was that they had the wrong expectation. They misunderstood or, 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 or somewhere along the way uh, got lost in the mix of what is real and true. But it doesn't matter. The point is they thought Jesus was going to do something. He didn't. And so their conclusion was he can't be the right Messiah. There will still be one to come who will be the right Messiah. And that Messiah will set up the nation of Israel and we will rule together with him over the world. So the question then emerges... If you're reading 1 through 8 rightly and you're Jewish and you have many Jewish family and friends that have not accepted Christ, at the point you get to Romans chapter 8 and it's about adoption and sealing of the Spirit and if you're in Christ, you're in Christ and you belong to Him and it's beautiful, you would say then, Paul, question, what about our kinsmen by the flesh, our, our ethnic Jewish friends? This doesn't apply to them, Right? Because you see, because God made promises to them, right? And and he said things about them. And and listen, those promises, do they they still stand? So in other words, if you're Jewish, you're good. And if you're Jewish and you know Jesus, you're better. And if if you're Gentile and you don't know Jesus, you're dead. And if you're Gentile and you know Jesus, you're good. Okay? So that's kind of the idea. Is that how this works? Because the Jewish people have a set of promises that God has to remain faithful to even if they kind of miss the Messiah, right? That's the question. And if the answer is no, if the answer is, no, no, Romans chapter 8, then the next statement would be, isn't that unfair? Now you're going, what do you you mean? Okay, let let me put it out there for you, right? The Jewish people, ethnic Israel, live faithfully with God. Now granted, chapter two, we realize that got undone, but just in general terms, they live faithfully. They follow God. They live by the law as best they can. They, 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 they are the people of God for centuries, for thousands of years. He uses them as the people of God. They are the ones that bring the Messiah to planet earth, if he's the Messiah, right? And, and the pagan Gentiles, they do whatever they want, unrighteous crazies. And Jesus shows up and here's how it works. I'm so sorry you were faithful and righteous and all that, but uh, you don't believe in Jesus, so you're, you're gone and Gentiles. Oh, you were, you were pagan crazies. But don't worry, if, if you just believe in Jesus, you're, you're good. Doesn't that sound a little unfair? And if the Jewish people are now lost to salvation because they don't accept Jesus, but they have all the other stuff, then how can we say God is still faithful? 
Surely God's faithful promises are undone. So does God just switch the game whenever he wants? These are big questions, aren't they? And the Jewish people would have been sitting now in the end of Romans 8 saying, what about our kinsmen? What about ethnic Israel? They're still good, right? Even if they don't know Jesus. And if you've been around the gospel, then you already know the answer, don't you? And it's not an easy answer. It's not an easy answer. And the Spirit of God knows it's not an easy answer. And Paul knows it's not an easy answer. So he's going to step into this answer now, which will expand through Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. If at a certain point, I'm standing in a conversation with a couple of guys that are part of ethnic Israel in this time of history, and they say to me, hold on, love Romans 1 through 8, but my kinsmen, they don't believe in this Messiah, but they still have all of the realities of the promises of God, they still belong to God, right? And, and, and I say, well, no. And they say, that's unfair. The second you tell me that's unfair, here's where I'm going. Gently, but I'm going here. That's unfair, you say. That's unfair. Okay, well, they had every reason to believe. They had the longevity of the story. They knew the Old Testament. They should have believed. They rejected. And when they rejected, well, then they get what's coming to them. I mean, gently. (laughs) So that's in Paul's normal scheme of things what I expect. That Paul's going to gently say, well, I am sorry to tell you, but it's Jesus and Jesus alone by faith and faith alone. So the answer to the question is kind of no. And, and we'll unpack that. So let's take a look. Are you ready now to enter 9, 10, and 11? Because it's awesome. Here we go. Okay. Ch- chapter 9, verse 1. It's on page uh, 1046. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide. Otherwise, on your smart device or a Bible you brought yourself. Uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 1. It starts this way, I am speaking the truth in Christ. So I I love that statement because when you're about to say something hard, right, you kind of start it this way. It's not me saying it, it's Jesus. I'm just saying, right? I mean, it's not me saying it, it's Jesus. So I'm speaking the truth in Christ. So you would think that statement is setting us up for Paul to step in gently but firmly to say, it's not unfair because they rejected him. So let's just leave it at that. So let's take a look where it goes. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So now it's going on a bit long, right? I mean, you're saying a lot of stuff to kind of set up this hard thing you're going to say. But isn't that what we do when we know we're about to say something that's going to be relatively unbelievable, shocking, and and people are going to have a hard time believing that what we're saying is in fact true. We always kind of start that way. Look, what I'm about to tell you, I just want you to know it's absolutely true. And I mean, like, legit true. I'm totally, you, you can you can Google it. It's, and that always makes it true, doesn't it? Um, you can do it. And, and if I could open my head up and you could look into my conscience, my conscience would reveal to you that I, I'm telling you the truth. So we're ready for Paul now to begin the journey of saying, well, they rejected him, so they deserve it. Verse 2. That I have great sorrow. And unceasing anguish in my heart. That was unexpected, wasn't it? Considering the question, uh, this, this seems unfair. The people that rejected the Messiah, surely because they still have circumcision and the promises and the covenants and everything else, surely they're still okay. And Paul's answer to that starts here. I want you to know that what I'm about to tell you is the truth. I would not lie about this. In fact, if I could open my head and you could see my conscience, you would know this. So let me tell you what the truth is that I want to say to you. I have great sorrow. And I am in unceasing anguish over my kinsmen. Now remember, this is Paul's heart. But who is the one writing through Paul? Who is the one inspiring Paul to write every one of these words down? It is God himself. And I love that God's about to go into 9, 10, and 11 where he's going to unpack some incredibly intricate details as to how all this works and why it works and why he remains faithful even though it seems that he's unfaithful and how all that plays so that we would be absolutely in awe of his mercy but also have to understand some very hard things. And he begins here. What I'm about to say is going to be difficult For you to hear. But I want you to know that I grieve with you over its difficulty. I am in deep sorrow. 
I love that Paul uses these words the way he does. He doesn't just say, I'm sad about the, you know, people. No, no. He uses four words and he puts them, I mean, when you start using adjectives like these, you're trying to get a point across. He doesn't even say, I, I, I have sorrow. That would be big. Sorrow versus sad. It's just bigger. But when you say, I have great sorrow. And then unceasing. <laughs> you know, we, these words, they just go by. But they're big words. They're meaningful words. I have unceasing anguish. I'll tell you, we don't really get unceasing anguish until we face a tremendous tragedy in our lives. Usually then unceasing anguish becomes real to us. If some of you here have walked through big, hard things, the loss of someone you deeply love in an an untimely manner, then then you know what I mean when, when it says, I have unceasing anguish. You learn to do life, you do. You learn to wake up in the morning and go about your day and eat breakfast and lunch and dinner and do your job and meet with people and have coffee and you even have fun now. You can do fun things. But always, always lingering in the back of your mind is this unceasing anguish over what happened. I have walked in those spaces with people where you just know you're never not going to have that on your mind, are you? This is how Paul is speaking of this reality. Not as something to be passed by, but as something that deeply grieves him. That, that my people who, who have all of these things, I would want them to know Jesus above all else. And the fact that they don't, let me start here, it grieves my heart. I love that God, even to those whom reject him, his first response is, my heart is grieved for you. Not an angry God. A God of great sorrow and unceasing anguish for those who are lost. What a way to start. Look what he says next. This is insane. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So he's speaking directly in the context of ethnic Israel now and saying to those who are part of the people of God of the Old Testament that are part of this reality of those who have been the recipients of all these promises, they have now rejected the Messiah. And if I, Paul, could undo myself and my salvation and be cursed and damned for all of eternity so that they might come to know him. I want you to know I would wish for that. You have no idea how deep that statement goes. See, Paul says he would wish for that because he knows he cannot do that. Do you know why he cannot do that? Because he is a human being, he is not God. He can save no one, nor can we. If you think you can save someone with a better articulation of the gospel or a more convincing uh, uh, way of living your life or you've got someone in your life that you're just like, if I, if I can just, if I can just do these things, then they will believe that uh, you can't. Not even Paul could do that. He could not lay himself down on the altar for his kinsmen of the flesh because the only one who can lay himself down on the altar for the salvation of the souls of humans is Jesus Christ, the God of the universe and our Savior. And so Paul says, do you not think, as I'm about to say what I need to say about this, that before I say it, do you not think that I would do anything for those who have longest known God to know him now still? But I cannot, and I am grieved over that. Now Paul's going to do something beautiful as he prepares to walk into the rest of 9, 10, and 11. He not only says to them, I grieve more than you over my kinsmen of the flesh. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. But now he also says this. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Why would he go through this list, this incredible list of all the things that are the promises and covenants that make up the faithfulness of God to the, to the, the kinsmen of the flesh, ethnic Israel? Why would he go through this? I love this moment because here's what Paul is doing. He is saying, I understand your question. 
I understand your struggle with what seems unfair. Yeah, have you ever been in those situations where uh, somebody's teaching or you're teaching and you kind of go through a sequence of things and then you say, any questions? And someone puts their hand up, ming. And then the question they ask is literally the answer to their question is what you just told them. Have you ever had that? Like, uh, the, the part I don't understand is this. And you're like, uh, and the whole class looks at them like, where were you? Like, we literally just covered this. Like, literally. And then you kind of go, well, to answer your question, I'm going to hit the record button on the recording because I just went over it, right? This is what this question could come across like. You get to the end of Romans chapter 8 after we've unpacked Romans 1 and 2 and the reality of why the Jewish people failed even though they were the Jewish people uh, with the law because of their sinful nature. You've covered chapter 3 and 4. You've gone into 5 and peace with God. You've covered 6. You've gone through 7 where we're no longer obligated to the external code. You've undone circumcision. You've undone the law. You've brought Jesus to the table. You've made the Spirit of God giant in 8. You've talked in 8 about all this. The question is already answered. And yet... Paul does not go, do you guys understand how stupid that question is? Would somebody start reading Romans again from chapter one, just move all the way through? So, no, Paul says this. I understand why you are asking this question. It's not because you don't understand the answer. It's because the answer feels unfair to you. And I get it. Guys, when we are dealing with God, we will often walk into spaces where what he declares, we will have to sit and go, uh-uh. That's, that feels unfair. That sounds unfair. That doesn't make any sense. And God's heart to us is, I know this is hard. And I understand why you're asking the question. Because from your vantage point, it would seem that because of these truths, something else must be true. And I've made something other than that true. And you're confused. Here's what Paul says. I grieve with you and I get it. I get the question. The people of Israel, the ethnic Israel, they are the recipients of all these things. And when we get to the part of Christ, when you go, and they, the people of Israel, literally through them, the Messiah was brought to the world. You would think with a story that awesome and a part in God's story that big, you would think they kind of get a free pass out of all this. And that story is big and it is awesome. And Christ did come through them. See, one of the things you'll discover that I am discovering, that we are discovering together, is that there is this great collision between our diversity and our unity. That each of us have a, a, an individuality and each group has an individuality. Each, each entire part of history plays a part in God's story and the parts are different. And yet we are in perfect equality and none of us are better than anyone else or less better than anyone else. So there is this collision between our diversity and yet our unity and equality. The second our diversity causes us to think that we are somehow entitled to things or better than or less than better than somebody else, it has become demonic. But the second it is the beauty that colors the pages of God's creativity, then it is beautiful. So we neither want to undo diversity, but nor do we want to live in diversity as dissension. And so here's what he says here. He says, don't you understand that the story of Israel has been unique, no doubt about it. They are the recipients of many things. And through that, them being the recipients of many things, something happened that was for the people, for the world. The Messiah was born. But that was not ever only for Israel. Do you remember in Genesis where he said, through you, all nations will be blessed. This has always been the plan for the whole deal, the whole story. And your unique part, what you've forgotten, is that your unique part doesn't make you unique or special. It's just cool that you played that role. And so, yes, Israel had a unique part in the story, and the Messiah came, but now the next sentence. Look, and this is the bridge into chapter 9, and then through into 10, and then through into 11, and then landing us in 12. Here's the great bridge. Watch this. Verse 5 again, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ. And then he says this, who is God? Now I love that he makes that statement right here early on because remember, for those who rejected the Messiah that were part of ethnic Israel, they rejected him because he wasn't the right Messiah. So they were waiting for another Messiah. And here's what Paul does immediately. This Messiah is who? God. How many of them are there then? One. 
There is no other Messiah coming. This one is God. So there may be other great men or women that will emerge at some point to be able to bring about great movements in our nation. We see in our history, throughout history, there are great men and women that sometimes spark great movements that overthrow great dictators. But the trouble is none of them will be a Messiah. He is the only one because he is indeed God. And so he solidifies right here early on, remember we're not talking about options when it comes to Messiahs. We are talking about one Messiah one God who came to do what needed to be done to overcome sin and death. And then look what he says next. Who is God over all? Who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. This Messiah who has come through the unique story of ethnic Israel came not for ethnic Israel exclusively, but for all. Folks, we hear this. In our context, because you know, you're churchgoers now and you know Jesus, and, and so obviously the gospel is for all of us, and so when we hear that, we kind of go, yay, amen. When what we ought to do is fall down on our faces on the ground and say, I should never have had that. We do not deserve this. It should never have been for all. It should never have been for any because none of us deserve the realities of God's mercy and his great salvation. And yet Jesus came for who? All. And you and I sit here because he is for all. And that is incredible. So we should stop here and go, oh, that's right. I'm only in because he is gracious and merciful. <clears throat> right after he says this, he says these words in verse 6. But it is not as though God's... Uh, as though the word of God has failed. So you, you see where he's going next, right? He just came into this thing. I, I grieve with you. I get the question. I see how it seems unfair. And remember that through the story of uh, ethnic Israel, the Savior was brought, the Savior was brought through the, the promises, through the covenants, through the law, through the, the giving uh, of, of the, the, the beauty and reality of the story of Israel. So we know the Messiah because of those things. And, and so now the Messiah has arrived. What a unique part in the human story. You have ethnic Israel. And, and yet this Messiah is God. There's only one of them. And yet he is for all. So we need to talk about that. And so you're kind of stepping. You're catching your breath now. Okay, this is going to be hard to swallow. And Paul starts here. I want you to know that God's word is not undone. In other words, God's faithfulness is not compromised. Now he's going to take quite some time to unpack that. Chapters 9, 10, and 11. In, in chapters 9, he's going to talk about God is faithful, not unfair. And you know how he's going to do that? He's going to walk through a vision of who God is that's going to blow our minds. It is going to blow our minds. You're going to be excited and afraid simultaneously. Because that's how you should feel about God every day. Excited and afraid and excited and afraid, but not afraid in a bad way. Afraid in a good way. Because if he stops thinking about you, you stop being. I, I'm just saying you should be just a tad like, who? Yes. And we're going to hear in chapter 9 of who God actually is. So that we don't believe any longer that God functions in a democracy and we are the people. And the power is with the people. Because that's, that's what works in America and on this planet because we live with a bunch of corrupted other people who are leading us and they need us to keep them in check. But God does not need us to keep him in check. And so in chapter 9, he's, Paul's going to go at the throat of that philosophy and say... P.S. You don't get a vote. <laughs> P.S. God doesn't care what you think, but he does care about you. And so you are going to have to start living with the fact that God does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, in any way that he wants. And when he does it, it is right, good, true, holy, fair, just, and beautiful. Even if it doesn't seem like that to you. And that's going to be a, a tough chapter to swallow and a beautiful chapter to realize. God is God. We are not. And through that, he's going to demonstrate in the intricacies of that God's faithfulness to his people throughout history, including ethnic Israel. Then we're going to enter into chapter 10. And chapter 10 is going to be like so awesome because the feet of him who brings good news is beautiful feet. And here's what chapter 10 is going to be. When Jesus came, he came for you and you and you and you and you and me. He came for all of us. And the simplicity of encountering Jesus is no longer a complex scenario of obeying thousands of laws and going through sacrificial systems and, and managing covenants. It is now the simplicity of by faith realizing who he is. 
and walking with him as Lord. Chapter 10 is going to be this beautiful declaration of the expansive nature of God's mercy and grace and how simple it is for us because we are simple people who need simple things to be able to encounter anything good. And then he's going to tell us, P.S., even the simple stuff that you can't even do, I've done for you. And then chapter 11, the one we generally skip, oh, that one's going to be the best of all. Because in chapter 11, he's going to show us how the people that rejected him he has not rejected. That the people that rejected him, that, that you would say by the end of 10, okay, I get it. If you're ethnic Israel, you, you, you're out. He's going to go, uh, not so much. And he's going to say things like this. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. He's going to say, my ethnic friends, of, the is, uh, of Israel. You rejected me, but I will pursue you because that's how I've always worked with humanity. You are now part of the greater wonder of grace and I will come for you. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fail? This is about Israel. By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? See, God is going, you thought I left them behind. I never leave anyone behind. Chapter 11 is like this. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whoever you've rejected, how many, many times you've shaken your fist at God, he cannot undo his love for you because he will not. He's after you. By the end of 11, we, we will not know what to do with ourselves. But all of that is for another time. <laughs> what we need to focus on today is far more simple than all of that. You see, this entire passage of 9, 10, and 11 speaks to our humanity and how we function all the time. You and I, as human beings, we are born onto this planet. And the second we start breathing, we start comparing. It's what we do. We compare ourselves to everyone else around us. That's why all of you are generally dressed the same. You're like, no, I'm not. I picked this very carefully. Yeah, but you're not wearing something out of the 1920s. And your hair's not like a big perm. I mean, the big one. If you've got permed hair, I, lo I love you. I'm, I'm talking about the like <laughs> giant one, right? And most of us guys that are under 30 have beards, right? I'm just saying, like, it's going to be weird 20 years from now, but it's not weird now. And so we will all conform in 20 years to whatever the general scope is because we are constantly comparing ourselves and we want to be individuals but not too individuals so that we're strange and weird. We want to fit in but not really fit in. We want to stand alone but not really alone, right? And so we're constantly comparing. And then as we compare, we catalog. We catalog and we catalog and then we co contrast and we contrast and then we categorize. Who's, who's smart, who's not? Who's pretty, who's not? Who's handsome, who's not? Who drives the right stuff, who doesn't? Who lives in the right neighborhood, who doesn't? Who's fashionable and who's not? Who gets it and who doesn't? Who's talented and who's not? And then we, we expand beyond that. We go into people groups. Who's black? Who's white? Who's Hispanic? Who's Asian? How are those things different? And the really, really important question, who's better? Because isn't that what we do? Who's better? Who's more deserving? Who's the better choice? Oh, how lucky I am that I'm not fill in the blank. This is what we do, people. This is what we do. We do it because we are part of a planet of death that constantly needs to try to help us feel better. And so even in this neat mix, what was really going on? The Jewish people were saying, hold on, hold on. I, I, I think the Gentiles are cool, but what about us? Don't we have some rights that are ours, that are for us? And they, they, they shouldn't. And frankly, I'm still a bit ticked off that it's unfair that they got in, but I'm happy for them. And the Gentiles, oh no, hold on, hold on. The Jews had every reason to accept Jesus and they didn't. <laughs> Stupid. If I were a Jew and I knew everything they did, then I would have accepted Jesus. I accepted him even though I didn't know all that stuff. Wow. And this is what we do. And what is Paul going to say over and over and over again? Here's what he's going to say. 
None of you deserve Jesus. None of you deserve grace. None of you deserve mercy. You're all equally undeserving. And he is equally for all of you. And he pursues all of you with his unrelenting love. We live in a world that is constantly trying to take our diversity and turn it into inequality. And it is a demonic action. And it is opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is about us living in the beauty of his mercy and grace as a unified force, regardless of our backgrounds, our, our categories, our ethnicities, our, our facial structures, our intelligence, our, our jobs, our economic positions, and, and anything else that we can find. What we're going to discover in 9, 10, and 11 is that one of the most beautiful and extraordinary fruits of the gospel is a humanity brought together in unity to utilize our diversity to create a picture of God's creativity and not to create dissension because of our differences. Oh, we are different and we ought to be. Even in the body of Christ, he's going to tell us that. I didn't make each one of you the same. I didn't give you all the same talents and gifts because that would be stupid because that would be like one big giant eye that can't talk, walk, or breathe. But instead, I made some of you the eye and some the finger and some the knee and some the, the kidney. Each of you play a different role. But if you don't play it as one, then it doesn't work. Because you are one first and you are diverse second. And your diversity is for the collective and the collective is for the glory of God. It's not even about the collective. It's about the glory of God. And the collective displays the glory of God when the individuals enhance the collective because we belong to the one to whom all glory belongs. And we are going to dig into that for three straight chapters, which in our world is months. And then we are going to discover the mercy of God. May we live in unity and not dissension. May we live in the beauty of God's gospel and mercy and grace, not in comparison and not in categorization of one another. Let's pray. God, you're an extraordinary and wondrous God, full of mercy and grace. You have given us much to be in awe of. And ultimately, all of it brings us back to you, just, just to be in awe of you. Thank you for your mercy to ethnic Israel, to your mercy to the Gentile world, your mercy to generations past, and your mercy to this generation and your mercy to generations future. Thanks for your grace and mercy to me and to us. Teach us how to be captivated by that and that alone, you and you alone, so that all else would be brought into equality and unity, that we might live as a perfect display of your wondrous and beautiful character, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When... Uh, we are done spending time in God's Word. Here at Mosaic, we often step into a few minutes of practicing a discipline of the faith together, or as we call them, a work of intimacy. It's, it's just things we do to continue to work on intimacy with God, because He's intimate with us, but we are distractible and forgetful people, and so we are not intimate with Him often. And so though He's with us, we are not with Him, and we need to be with Him. Sometimes, one of the fruits of the disciplines of the faith is that they're, they're not just something for intimacy, but they also can be transformative for us and they can also be utilized to be a way by which we invade the dark spaces of this planet and we can be transformative. So prayer is a great example of that. When we pray, we are not only working at intimacy with God, but we're also getting to participate in affecting redemption on planet Earth through praying for others or praying for things. Last weekend... We stepped into a little bit of a journey. It started in Charlottesville. A bunch of people ran around waving flags that represent ideologies and philosophies that thousands and thousands of men and women died to undo. When the neo-Nazi movement flies that terrible flag, it, it makes me sick. 
and the white supremacy that is born out of that and stands beside it is demonic. I mean demonic and horrid. And it has no space in a place where we are carrying the light of the gospel because it is opposed to all things that is the gospel. It stands in direct opposition to that. It is ungodly. And it grieves me to see that kind of stuff. It does. I mean, for me, it's more personal than it's ever been before. Because in my home, I have the privilege of parenting eight beautiful kids. And depending on how long the summer lasts, my skin tone changes to match either the first set or the second. (laughs) Currently, I'm a little more on the second set. But as the winter comes, I'll gravitate back toward the first again. I will have to have different conversations with different kids in my home because of that difference, that their skin color tone is slightly different and their facial structure looks slightly different. I will have to tell some of them things that I won't have to explain to the others in the way that they will encounter this country and this world. And that grieves my heart that I have to do that. And when people get up that buy into philosophies and ideologies that come out of the neo-Nazi movement and the white supremacists movement, we will not stand silently by and go, oh, don't worry, it'll fade. See, because that stuff is not the problem in of itself. That is just the fruit of a much deeper reality that exists in our nation where undercurrent there is racism and belief systems about who's better and who's not. And it secretly exists in all of us on some level. So, we have a visible display by which we can now stand and speak and stand against. But our first temptation is dangerous because when we first see that stuff, if you are like me and it grieves you, our first response to that is a feeling of anger. Now, nothing wrong with that at first. We should be angry. But that anger can quickly move to hatred. Hatred for those who hate us or those who hate our friends or those who hate in general. And then our hatred becomes just a secondary version of what is opposed to the gospel. Hatred has never overcome hatred. And it never will. Though I feel with you. If you are here and you have been the recipient of hatred because of the color of your skin or the accent by which you speak or the, or the, the country you come from or simply the economic space you lived in or live in, hear it from me. You can open my head up and see my conscience. I grieve with you and for you, and I'm so sorry. I hate that we live on a planet where that's still true. And I will stand by you. I will stand for you, and I will stand in between you and any hatred that comes your way. But I will not stand in hatred with anyone because the gospel of Jesus Christ calls me to recognize that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against principalities and powers and dark places, evil demonic forces that love to blind anyone who doesn't know Jesus and try to blind those who do. The best solution to the neo-Nazi movement or the movement of the white supremacists, supremacists is for them to be redeemed by Jesus Christ and to come to know him because then it will be undone. So that is what I pray for, that the spirit of God will move in power and redeem those folks from their insanity so that they would grieve as we do the hatred in which they currently live. But in the meantime, our voice must be a voice of unity and our actions must be actions of unity together here. So prayer in its expanded version, includes confession. And today I want us to pray for two things. (laughs) I want us to pray against all this insanity and horror. I want us to pray for God to stop this movement. See, right now they feel like they have just a bit of headway because of Charlottesville and all the media. So they're going to pop up here and there. And I, I, I want you to know I will pray every day with any of you that God would bring that to a quick and swift end. But I'm also going to pray and ask God to show me me. Because in me, there are things. They may not be as giant. They may not be tied to ethnicity. But they're going to be tied somewhere. I feel lucky that I'm not like 
such and such or that I don't have that or that I, that I have this. And in me somewhere there are spaces that are saying you are better than someone else or you are not as good as someone else. Both of them demonic thoughts because Christ has made us exactly as we ought to be. And though unredeemed, he is redeeming us every day and has redeemed us for eternity. So we are now his new creation. We should not think more of ourselves or less of ourselves than we ought. So I'm going to ask God, God, where is it in me that I believe things, that I hold on to things that are secretly racist or secretly making me better than somebody else for any reason? And when he shows me, I'm going to ask him to do whatever is necessary to undo it. Because if it exists here, if any of you or I hold to some of the philosophies, not in big ways, we'll never wave a flag, but secretly we believe. And you can always know, it comes out in little ways. Oh gosh, I hope my son and daughter never marries, fill in the blank. Mm. God help us if we think these horrid things that are from a yesterday that should be buried and burned and killed. So we will not, and if we do, we'll ask the Spirit to undo us. And then we will stand together in unity, not ignoring our diversity because our diversity is beautiful, but not allowing it to shape inequality, but allowing us in unity to display to the world what it looks like when a people uniquely talented and gifted, uniquely shaped, uniquely made, can come together and become a colorful display of the creativity of God in their beautiful unity. So we're going to do it this way. I'm going to ask all of you to pray with me in unity. Instead of me just praying, we're going to turn, oh yes, to each other briefly and take two minutes and pray. Now, if you're here and you're like, oh gosh, I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I, 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 I don't even, I just, this is my first time, I can't. You, when I'm, I'm not asking you to pray. Someone in that little, in that little group will pray. Someone. And, and if you go, this is weird, we don't do this often. Not because we shouldn't, but just, we just don't. But we do it when it matters this much. And it matters this much right now. Because this insanity going on out there, we need to stand against it together in prayer. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to circle up maybe one person, maybe three or four. You can turn around. You can turn sideways. And I'm going to give you two minutes. And you're going to pray. One of you is going to pray. And you're going to ask God for two things. To go before us and undo what is happening out in our nation right now on the surface level. And then to bring us the clarity of what's going on underneath so we can see it undone. We will stand against the unredeemed spaces of racism and we will begin here now, praying together. And then one of you is going to pray, God, show us where we believe what we ought not to, where we are racist or where we are better or where we are worse than somebody else. Show me. And then convict me and then undo it in me so that I might stand in the gospel, in equality and unity, because of you not in my insanity. And then I'll close us out. So no more talking. Turn. Find someone or a few people. Pray.